Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another episode of Concord Matters. Pastor Jonathan Fisk in studio, looking at the Lutheran confessions and wanting to be of one mind with my brothers in Christ who are here with me, the marvelous, the angelic, Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church and, no, excuse me, just Trinity, in Milstadt, in Milstadt, Illinois, the inanswerable Sean Smith of St. Paul's Wine Hill and Emmanuel West Point, and Mr. Peter Slayton, social media manager for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We are on a journey with you to believe that when Christ speaks, we can speak back with one voice, with one word, having that mind bind us together and knowing, well, I guess I would say what we believe and why we believe it. We've been digging into this rather extended trip through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, defending Article 4, justification by grace through faith. We've seen it touches on all matter of things, though. It certainly is also part of Article 3 and Article 5. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to gather together? What does it mean to be sanctified? All this stuff is, is part of the same reality, law and gospel. What is all that? But we're still letting Melanchthon make his case that when we are accused of teaching against what the scriptures say by the Roman Catholics, we, in fact, don't. We teach what the scriptures say, and the verses that they think are on their side, well, they aren't always quite there, right? So, is that a good summary, gentlemen? It is. Indeed. Yeah. All right. So, we're going to try to cover a lot of text today, which means there are going to be some some moments of extended reading. And uh, aside from the fact... Okay, there we go. There, There's some humor to start the day. Uh, Pastor Sean Smith, you can't see it, but I, I just got to describe it. He was caressing his copy of Walter's Long Gospel with a, <laughs> oh, no. a familiarity oh, no. that, that breeds uh, or that, that shows uh, danger. Danger, Will Robinson. Well, no, it, it shows his love of, of this wonderful work is what it does. You got to read it. It's not well, like, you do. It's not for hugging. That's it's, true. <laughs> I sleep with it. Oh, no. It's not yeah. even a leather-bound nice no. cover. It's a hardback. No, no, this dude. one. Yeah, this is one of five copies that I own. But uh, Five copies? Yeah. I, I Are they all different, different translations? Yeah, different versions. Yeah. Excellent. Um, but... Uh, yeah, no, it, I mean, it's the way we're going to understand these texts that mm. are uh, in debate here in the apology. So I just thought I'd bring it along so, so what for you're moral is, support. What you're saying is that we need to have Walther to understand the confessions? No, we need to have long gospel. There we go. Okay, to good. understand well said, scripture. Well said. To make our confession. I do like the idea of him having five copies of the same book all open at once and basically reading one <laughs> word per and just hopping across. I think that's kind of fun. So like I said, we're going to be jumping into some bigger chunks of text here to try to try to move us through the back end of this apology here. So right now, if you've got your copy of Concordia the Lutheran Confessions, we're going to be picking up at apology 4 slash 5, 3, depending on how you number it. Paragraph 133, and we're going to read all the way through 137. So uh, buckle down. Certain other passages uh, about works are also cited against us, right? So there's all these passages that are claimed to be anti-Lutheran passages. Here they are. Luke 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. Isaiah 58, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Daniel 4, break off your sins by showing mercy to the oppressed. Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
and more Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Emma Lengthen continues, Even these passages would contain nothing contrary to us if the adversaries would not falsely attach something to them. For they contain two things. One is a preaching either of the law or of repentance. This preaching not only convicts those who do wrong, but also commands them to do what is right. The other is a promise that is added. But it is not said that sins are forgiven without faith or that works themselves are an atoning sacrifice. Furthermore, these two things should always be understood in the preaching of the law. First, the law cannot be obeyed unless we have been reborn through faith in Christ, just as Christ says in John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. Second, some outward works can certainly be done. But this general judgment, which interprets the whole law, must be retained. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, as the author of the Hebrews writes. The gospel must also be retained, that through Christ we have access to the Father. For it is clear that we are not justified by the law. Otherwise, why would we need Christ or the gospel if the preaching of the law alone would be enough? So in the preaching of repentance, it is not enough to preach the law or the word that convicts of sin. The law works wrath and only accuses. The law terrifies consciences because consciences never are at rest unless they hear God's voice clearly promising the forgiveness of sins. So the gospel must be added that for Christ's sake, sins are forgiven and that we obtain the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. If the adversaries exclude Christ's gospel from the preaching of repentance, they are rightly judged blasphemers against Christ. Now, kind of covering a lot of things that we've already uh, discussed a bit here as well, although the, those fighting words at the end about calling them blasphemers, I mean, that, that, that ain't no joke right there. But, you know, you mentioned, Pastor Smith, law and gospel being a part of this, right, just rightly understanding these two words, how they're both true, how they don't have to be set against each other, and that really, no matter what text of Scripture you come to, if you're trying to fuse law and gospel or make them enemies of each other as opposed to the two words that are both true, you end up really uh, blaspheming what the Scriptures are trying to say. Absolutely. And one of the key lines in there is uh, found in paragraph 135, uh, right before 136. The gospel must also be retained that through Christ we have access to the Father. That's really the focus of uh, thesis 16 for Walther's Law and Gospel, uh, which reads, You are not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you claim that people are truly converted when they get rid of certain vices and instead engage in certain works of piety and virtuous practices. He's he's reflecting the same thing in the early days of the LCMS uh, and his teaching there um, that uh the Lutheran reformers are addressing towards Rome in that day. There's really nothing new under the sun that, that we, we constantly have this tension that we desire to live that, that life of piety, the way that scripture guides us as we are, we are born again. But when you make it a preaching of that, you have to do these works that you have to have a certain piety, you're really only preaching law. And so what they're making a very key point there that you must retain the gospel because without the gospel, then you have to keep the whole law. And that's that's a really heavy burden. And, and one of the great things that Luther has, you know, uh, in his own writings about this, too, is that when we when we think about um, that, that we're really retaining the gospel and keeping it front and center, then we realize something like the Ten Commandments. That's all the things that we don't have to keep. But we desire to third function of the law. Uh, we desire to because they don't they don't save us. 
we are we are set free to to live in obedience to yeah, it. So you, we really got to retain that gospel. They're good in and of themselves. And here, Melanchthon, very much like Walther, uh, are both addressing the same thing, where their opponents in both cases are advocating for the law. You need to do more law, and they are attaching baggage to the scriptures. And uh, Melanchthon says, as long as they quote the Bible, go them. We, we affirm scripture, we're all for that, but when you start understanding things and couching these things in terms of, well, this is what the Bible says, and we're going to twist those understandings a little bit, and oftentimes they're very so, uh, subtle shifts, and as soon as those subtle shifts happen, then they're advocating for something else, and like Pastor Smith was saying, that's when we start looking into uh, the focus on the law with the exclusion of the gospel. And if the entire Christian life is about the law and there is no gospel, then we have a concern. And that's not only a concern that comes out of the 1530s or only a concern that comes out of the 1840s, but it's a concern now in 2017 when people will say, in the church we need to do the law. Otherwise, we have a bunch of people who talk about doing the law and never do it, and, and and so on. And you've heard the arguments about why we need to do the law more and do the law better. But if we don't speak the gospel, then we're not speaking the gospel. We're not doing it right. Uh, we are called to boldly and clearly confess the gospel. We're not here to be keepers of the law, but to be believers in Jesus Christ who is the savior of the world. I'd go so far as to say that if we're not speaking the gospel, we're not church, right? Yep. I mean, I'll I'll go, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for the law, but it, it ultimately isn't what makes us Christians. Correct. Yeah, the, the law can't, like we've talked about before, the law can't actually produce the good works. I mean, it says it right here, the law works wrath and only accuses. That's what the law does. So even as we recognize the law is good, it is, uh, as Pastor Smith was saying, it's, I was going to paraphrase, it's God's will for your life. We desire to do it as Christians at third use because this is God's will for how life is supposed to work. And yet at the same time, every time we hear it, while we rejoice that this is good, because it always accuses, we also recognize, I didn't live up to it. I didn't do it. I wasn't good enough. And you need that forgiveness because right here again, it says, consciences are never at rest until unless they hear God's voice clearly promising the forgiveness of sins. Doesn't get much clearer than that. And, and you mentioned in there too, uh, in paragraph one thirty six, and, and you read it as the this translation has it that the law works wrath and only accuses. I don't believe I was looking into this, um, and I just am not good enough at the German. Uh, but I don't believe that that's actually a very faithful uh, translation there, um, uh-huh. because they they are meaning that it always accuses. The law does always accuse, always and we does. hold this as, sure. as Lutherans. But it does not only accuse. Okay, um, and uh, and that that's in a very important distinction to make uh, that we've made on the show different times before but uh, if it only accuses well, <laughs> well uh, yeah, I then I really ex- don't yeah. have any use for the third function of the law and I, and I really don't desire it at all if yeah. it's only accusing me I suppose my explanation still works as w- with always you made the jump right. to always, always yes. yeah, you I made get, the jump I unconsciously but, yeah. did that great all right, I just cool. wanted to point that out because, inadvertently it, orthodox. because you read it correctly there in, <laughs> well I, w- I was going to bring this up as an example of uh, trying uh, whether or not it's the translation means it to say mm-hmm. only or always because I was going to ask that is, is anybody capable of figuring that out 
and kind of make fun of that. You know, you've heard it said the law doesn't only accuse, well, the confessions say it does, <laughs> right here, purple crayon and all that. Um, you know, it, 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 it could be just an example of Melanchthon speaking to a context or a moment as well. So in the, in the conversation about justification, the law only accuses, right? It doesn't justify in, other, in any other way. That's a good point. Right? Too, yeah. So it really doesn't matter in one sense, unless you're a fundamentalist and you're treating the confessions the way we don't even want to treat the Bible, right? Yeah, but yeah. It, is, it is kind of an interesting thing that it does have it here in the English. It'd be interesting to hear the, the history of that. You know, mm-hmm. translations sometimes have a bend or a spin to them mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. One of the other thoughts you made me think of, though, in, in contradistinction to, big word, the, uh, the lex semper accusat, the law always accuses idea, is that the law never, and, and maybe, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but the way I would kind of take this, the law never comforts. The law can show us what is good, but if I'm going to it to comfort my soul and my conscience, I'm either going to become proud or despairing. Those are my two options, right? So, so the law it, it doesn't only accuse, but it it is not there for our comfort. It is there, in in other words, to show us well the way to go. And I, I would also add to that that the despair side of that equation is actually legitimate. The problem with uh, well, let's say American evangelicalism or or Roman the adversaries, as we're saying here, is. Um, they kind of leave you at that despair. Mm. Uh, our difference isn't that we avoid the despair as Lutherans. It's not that we're going to say, no, no, you shouldn't despair. It's that that's not the end. Now here's the gospel because we should despair of our own good works and our own ability to keep the law. And so the distinction isn't that we're going to say, don't be proud, don't despair. It's all right. There's something on the other side of that despair. Here's the gospel. Be free. You're forgiven. And now that despair is in a completely different place as opposed to, oh, sorry, you're going to be left wallowing in it. You got nothing right. else. Christ- get- Christian proclamation always uh, takes you to that despair. The law comes to accuse and to kill. And when it does, then your pastor, your preacher, your Christian friend, your um, whoever gets to speak to you, ultimately, your Savior Jesus is able to look at you in your despair and say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, peace be with you, your sins are forgiven, mm. and you know for sure that your Savior has forgiven you. In the midst of your despair, he comes to you. Uh, we don't stop with, do the law more, do the law better, but instead it is, see... You can't do the law. Your pride hasn't gotten you anywhere. Your despair hasn't gotten you anywhere. Instead, here is the good news of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and who rose for you, who is your justification. Go in peace. You reach that despair and you say, look, this is how much you need Jesus. Exactly. There it is. And, and and again and again, because there's a certain group of Christianity in the Reformed tradition and so forth that kind of views the, the conversion experience of, okay, now I'm just focusing all on that sanctified life. Hmm. But it's something that we as Lutherans and Scripture clearly talks about that we kind of, not kind of, we do return to daily. Um, because, and, and I want to pick up on your question there about, you know, the, the law doesn't provide any comfort. Yeah, it's that tough tension. There's always these tensions that um, in terms of justification, of course not, which is something that we're constantly in. We're daily returning to it in our baptism um, because there is no comfort there because we can't do enough. We can't be perfect enough. And so the comfort is only found in Christ. 
Yet then at the same time, in the sanctified life, as we'll talk about in later articles, there is comfort found in there uh, in the law because we find out, oh, yeah, God gave us this because he actually wants us to be happy. And we, we actually find quite a bit of peace when we're walking according to the law. And that's where the life of piety comes in. And that's where Melanchthon and the, and the Lutheran reformers have pointed to again and again. It's not that we don't preach good works. It's not that we don't preach living a pious life, um, but it's got to be kept in its proper order. And uh, when you do, then you find the comfort in it in the sanctified life, recognizing as I kind of, you know, paraphrase Luther earlier of, look, this is all the stuff that you don't have to do. Right. Uh, but of course we desire it because we actually do find happiness and comfort there, but it's flowing out of the justification by grace through faith in Christ. Okay. So I got a question about this only always, um, the, the distinction there with justification, I think pastor Fisk, I think you said in regards to justification, the law only accuses. Now, as we move into sanctification, the Christian life, would we, is that where we might switch to the law always accuses because I'm never actually perfect. I'm never actually fulfilling it. I am still 100% sinner in addition to this 100% saint. So it's always, but there's another side of this law of me rejoicing in, you know, God's will for my life as well. Is that accurate? To, is that, and maybe if that's what we're trying to wrestle with in the translation issues here, that as long as we're talking about justification only is okay to use. When we move into sanctification, we kind of want to use always. Is I'd am say, I getting that? I'd say only is is too easy to, to misunderstand. And so, as Even a dogmatic in the context of justification, uh, yeah, well, sure. if you if you said it that way, and someone could follow you on you know justification <laughs> and what all that means, right? So one of the things that the the formula often does is it recognizes that there are ways of speaking which might be technically correct and you can defend, but may not be the best way to publicly speak all the time anyway, mm. right? Because it's going to cause a controversy if if for another reason or because it's got baggage to it. And so that's I would just be really careful about taking this phrase "only accuses," given how it's been taught regularly by faithful pastors. The law doesn't only accuse it always accuses and in making that distinction i wouldn't go out and just insist on publicly teaching against it cavalierly right it's just gonna sure. it's just gonna stir up controversy even though you can sit down and you can say look now there's this there's within the doctrine of justification the law does me no good it just kills me ah. yeah and and just using always is really helpful because even then in the sanctified life it recognizes that i never leave justification behind i'm mm. constantly there because it's always accusing me. It's still accusing Even when I recognize in the sanctified life, the happiness and comfort that it provides and I desire to live according to it, it's still accusing me and saying, you're not doing enough. Yeah. Okay. Back to Jesus. I don't have to. I want to recant something I just said. I said in, in justification, the law does me no good. It just kills me. Notice the the law bad gospel good move I made right there, right? Yeah, yeah that's totally wrong. Yeah, the law does me all sorts of good. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the law does me all sorts of good by killing me. This is part of why the struggle is like. Part of the reason we love the law is that it shows us where the way to go. Part of it is that I love the wound it makes in my heart that it gets filled up with Jesus. But it's like you said before, the law doesn't bring the comfort. Um, and so when we say that the law is good, that doesn't mean that the law is comfortable. Hmm. And the law is always uncomfortable as it does that accusing work. Who likes to be accused? Nobody that I know of. There might be a few uh, sadists and masochists out there in the world, but I'm not one. Uh, it's not comfortable to be accused, but it is good. And so the law is good. And we let it do what it does. 
because we also know that the gospel comes hot on the heels of the law. Uh, and that is where we hear the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why we retain the gospel. If it's just about the conversion experience and then you move on and learn more and more about how to fulfill and accomplish the law, then the church becomes simply a be a better Christian house or be a better person, be a better uh, liver out of good deeds. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be believers of Jesus Christ and of his gospel. Uh, And it comes back to uh, Pastor Fisk, like you said before, if we don't retain the gospel, we stop being church. Right. And that's a big deal. I think you made a really good point there with talking about it's, it's good, but it's not comfortable, especially for our current society, culture, the day and age in which we live. What is good is defined by many if not most, as that which makes me feel good. You know, that which, that which is comfortable, therefore, is good. Uh, and so we are the ultimate in countercultural right now by saying, no, no, this thing that hurts you, this thing that is painful, this thing that you hate, this thing that kills you, as we've been saying, this is actually the best thing for you. And that our culture just simply can't wrap its head around that. I think for the most part. Maybe it never has been able to, but I think particularly now. Well, it makes me think of something that Luther says. The worst thing you can do for a child is give him what he wants. And this talk about countercultural as an idea, right? He's picking up on that suffering is sometimes good for us. And if you just look at the way that we approach parenting in general, and we don't believe that at all these days. We, You guys want to cover more texts. We've got to move forward. But I want to ask, are any of these verses that were just dropped here as accusations of the of the the opponents, should we pick up on any of these or, or touch on them? I'm not sure that I, these verses are all Holy Scripture, and they, they stand as they are. But it's when we start to, not we, it's when people start to give them an additional force uh, and begin to twist them a little bit and read only these passages, and in my copy of the uh, the Book of Concord here, there's all kinds of, of dots and ellipses and things that are left out, and you can tell that people are uh, reading them a little bit out of context. And as they're reading them out of context, they're saying, see, see, you have to do all this. And there's a certain point to that, but there's also, uh, I mean, we affirm Holy Scripture at the end of the day, but we don't read it out of context. And we don't uh, force the Word of God into our own uh, pattern. And we're not trying to pound um, a square, law-shaped peg through a gospel-shaped hole. Um, And that's what's trying to be done here. I I, I think one of the things that they're talking about here and that they attach things to this— I see it, you know, in in the vision-driven ministries and those sorts of things as well. I'm often skeptical of such things because I I say, what is it you're trying to accomplish of your own personal agenda? And I think that's what they're they're talking about in terms of the, the Church of Rome here. They clearly had an agenda in Rome. They were trying to build, you know, big churches and cathedrals and uh, raise money for the church and do all sorts of things that were not right. And while those may not be the specific issues um, that we have today, I still see churches doing the same thing. You have a pastor and a congregation who has certain things in their mind that they want to do and accomplish. And so they, they pull these scriptures kind of out of context and they attach other things to them. And, and, you know, 
it, it's really easy to guide people if this is the constant preaching you're getting and constant teaching you're getting into thinking, oh, well, I have to do this to truly be a child of God. And that's always a dangerous thing. Um, and, and this is very important here because as we've talked about, you know, what Melanchthon points out here is actually these things are not in contrary with what we're teaching. They're returning us to uh, where we're crushed and killed. What is good for us is exactly what we just talked about. Um, but if you're pulling them out of context and attaching your own means, um, it's because you have your own agenda that you're trying to accomplish. And I, I think we still face this today. Um, I don't know. I think that's really interesting in that I remember a professor at the seminary saying something along the lines of you're going to go and lean on law heavy preaching or, or the law predominating in your preaching when you think you need to move your people somewhere and you're mm-hmm. going to try to use the law to do what you see the gospel not being able to do. And especially if I've created my own agenda, my own vision for the church that isn't the gospel, <laughs> right? Uh, then of course I'm going to go searching for those pieces of law to move people in the direction of my my personal ambitions. And, and that's, I mean, that's a temptation for if, uh, faithful pastors. You don't have to be unfaithful to, to, to have that temptation oh, yeah, and no. end up falling into that trap. Yeah. Agreed. Shall I continue reading? No. We'll take a break early and come back with uh, more Concord Matters and all five copies of Long Gospel. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Disaster Response is providing relief and mercy in the wake of the devastation from Harvey, a tropical system that struck the Gulf Coast and caused historic flooding. Response teams are assisting local congregations to aid their communities. Information is online at lcms.org Harvey. Please pray and consider donation or volunteer opportunities. You can text to give and donate via smartphones by texting LCMS Harvey to 41444. I'm KFUO's Kip Allen. I'm a committed Lutheran, but I'm just a layman with no special theological training. Like many of us, I have questions and I seek guidance. I need answers given to me in a language I can understand. That's what this program's all about. Let's talk. The pastor is in. Friday afternoon at 2 on KFUO, the messenger of good news. Russian Jewish artist Mark Chagall was one of the 20th century's most renowned visual interpreters of the Bible. Chagall spent 20 years creating 105 etchings for an Old Testament published in 1956, and his works inspired by the crucifixion are eagerly sought by galleries from all over the world. Chagall's magnificent peace window at the United Nations building in New York City was created in honor of UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. He died in a plane crash in 1961 
while on a mission to negotiate peace in the Congo. Chagall's design, full of biblical imagery, was inspired by Isaiah 9-6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Listen to Concord Matters, where we're too busy talking about the internet to get back on the text. Your time is Pastor John the Fist chatting with Pastor Peter Ill, Pastor Sean Smith, and Mr. Peter Slayton about Augsburg Confession, Article 4. Just finishing up paragraph 136 and ready to move in to paragraph 137. And I played whack a mole with Peter Slayton saying, you know, would you like to read? No, 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 yes, go, go, no, yes, no. Now That's why back. I asked first because I was like, oh, I might get cut off in the middle That's if right. I don't ask. So why don't you pick up for us right there? 137. All right, line 137. Isaiah preaches repentance as follows Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So the prophet both urges repentance and adds the promise. But in such a sentence, it would be foolish to consider only the words, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. For he says in the beginning, cease to do evil, where he criticizes impiety of heart and requires faith. Also, the prophet does not say that through the works, correct oppression bring justice to the fatherless. They can merit the forgiveness of sins by the outward act, ex opere operato. But he insists that such works are necessary in the new life. At the same time, he means that the forgiveness of sins is received through faith. So the promise is added. We must understand all similar passages in this way. Christ preaches repentance when he says, forgive. And he adds the promise, and you will be forgiven, Luke 6, 37. He does not say that when we forgive, we merit the forgiveness of sins by our outward act, as they term it, but he requires a new life, which certainly is necessary. At the same time, he means that forgiveness of sins is received through faith. So when Isaiah says, share your bread with the hungry, chapter 58, verse 7, he requires a new life. Nor does the prophet speak of this work alone, but as the text shows, of the entire repentance. At the same time, he means that the forgiveness of sins is received through faith. For the following is sure, and none of the gates of hell can overthrow it. The preaching of the law is not enough in the preaching of repentance. This is true because the law works wrath and always accuses. But the preaching of the gospel should be added so that the forgiveness of sins is granted us. Our sins are forgiven if we believe that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Otherwise, why would we need the gospel? Why would we need Christ? This belief should always be in view so that it may oppose those who cast Christ and the gospel aside and wickedly distort the scriptures to human opinions, such as the idea that we purchase the forgiveness of sins by our works. Yeah, that that's like a beautiful sermon right there, you know, just expanding upon um, how Isaiah is preaching repentance and faith, 
right? And, and, and it, this really is important. You know, we've said it a few times, but this is all caught up together. That when you're preaching the sanctified life, right? When you're preaching uh, that that your these works will follow. Uh, sometimes we 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 speak in the technical terminology of you know the gospel assumes the law, right? So forgive, all right. I'm, I'm, that's a gospel word, forgive, right? And you will be forgiven. All right, well, this is assuming the law that it's going to flow forth from that you have been forgiven because you have been made right with God. That very thing that you can't accomplish, it's going to naturally flow forth from that. And so we've talked about, you know, uh, you know, Luther's phrase that, you know, faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. This is the, the very thing that we're talking about here, I think laid out very well uh, with that when he says forgive, he has the promise and you will be forgiven. This is just the natural progression of things. I don't have to fear works happening when, when we're preaching faithfully all that's been done for you in Christ. Okay, before the show, as we were starting, I said I had a big exegetical question for you guys. This is where uh, that question comes in. How do we know that this is a promise and not a conditional statement? Because many other Christian traditions you know, my own background that I come from, I would read forgive and you will be forgiven as a conditional. I'm only going to be forgiven if I forgive. I mean, my own natural reading of that seems to make it conditional. Same thing with a lot of these other passages. Um, and, and I've had this discussion with others where I tried to explain, well, no, no, it's not a conditional statement. It's a promise. And the response that I got back, at least in one case, was simply, well, you only believe that because that's what you've been taught. So my question for you guys is how do we actually exegete this text and draw out that this is a promise? What in the text indicates to us to read it in that way so that we know, yeah, this is, this is what it actually says as opposed to being conditional? First of all, in the gospel, right, uh, Christ has already reconciled you to the Father. And if you believe that, if that's your starting place, that's why the justification, the article on justification is this uh, place where the church stands or falls, right? If you are already reconciled to the Father, then you can't understand any of these things in a way of, well, then I have to do this. There's another one coming up this coming Sunday in the three-year lectionary series, Ezekiel 33, right? Um, where that you have to, you know, tell them, you know, where they're sinning. And you have to point that out to him. Otherwise, the blood's on your head, right? But if you tell him, you saved your soul, right? Okay, so I need to go around and tell Peter Ill and Peter Slayton and Jonathan Fisk all that there's all their sins, right? In order that I can save my soul? No, that's not how it works. I'm already reconciled to the Father. I am already saved from my sins. And I'm going to point you to that gospel as well, right? But then when I point out sins that I see in my brothers, right? Then I'm doing it not in a way that I'm doing it so that I can save my soul, but I'm saying, listen, this is dangerous for you, right? And and it's a, it's a work that flows forth from the fact that I'm already saved in Christ. I'm already reconciled. I'm not doing this to save myself. That's a whole context thing. Well, sure. and, and you're talking about scripture interpreting scripture. Right. So yeah, forgiven, you will be forgiven. If this is the only passage in scripture that talks about this, I guess we got to take it that way. That we're justified by forgiving other people. That's it. End of story. You know, last day is the question to get into heaven. This is not the only passage in scripture. We believe in the whole Bible, not just some of the passages. I would also say that in this particular bit here, this context, I'm not convinced it's talking about before God because the whole section is about how to treat your neighbor. Go back to verse 32. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? Right, so he's talking about how to treat your neighbor and loving your enemy as yourself. And then there's this string of phrases that all go together. Judge not and you will not be judged. Well, does that mean that part of salvation is that I never render judgment on anything at all, ever? I just am mindless because I could read it that way if I just take that by itself, right? No, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're handling your neighbor and you want to come to peace with them, well, then forgive them. Don't judge them, right? Give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Certainly, on the day of judgment, the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, is how the law will judge you on that day. But I'm not sure that's what he's really trying to get at here, is the final day. I think he's talking about, as he does throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, amplifying what the law means for us in the present moment. And that's exactly what he's done with this text, right? Which is, is true. I mean, if you're a forgiving person, other people are going to put up with you more. It's, it's just a reality, right? As opposed to, and so it's the James 2 thing in a sense, right? Are we talking mm-hmm. to Jiro Himano? Or are we talking about before God? Uh, so, uh, Well, and, and it also ties in, that's an excellent point that you just made. That also ties in with a reading coming up this Sunday, Matthew 18 in the three-year lectionary, uh, which ties in very nicely with that Ezekiel 33 passage. That's why they're connected together in the <laughs> lectionary. But, uh, you know, the, w- what's the goal of going to my brother, right, the first time and and talking about his sin, right? That I may gain my brother, mm. Matthew 18 says, right? And so it's talking about a relationship among us, right? And if there's discord between us, it's going to persist if there stands something between us. If we don't deal with the, you know, to use the, the metaphor kind of idea, you know, the, the elephant that's standing between us, you know, um, then there's going to continue to be a big gulf between us. I did not just call Peter Ill, who happens to be sitting no, between, he's between us. us. So I was kind of—I <laughs> was not calling in him at I was all. Considering but the context, it does <laughs> remind me of when Jesus said, "If you have five copies of Walther's Law and Gospel, and your brother has none, right? <laughs> give him one, right?" I mean, isn't that what it says? So, what about? Go ahead, Peter. Uh, there's also another related uh, passage in the Confessions. We've done a good job of kicking Scripture around. Um, that's not the right term. We don't kick scripture around. <laughs> but we've done a good job of discussing scripture. But also, uh, Martin Luther says in the large catechism on the fifth petition about uh, where we pray that God would forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Luther writes, there is here attached a necessary yet comforting addition. As we forgive, he has promised that we shall be sure that everything is forgiven and pardoned in the way that we also forgive our neighbor. Just as we daily sin much against God, and yet he forgives everything through grace, so we too must ever forgive our neighbor who does us injury, violence, and wrong, shows malice toward us, and so on. If, therefore, you do not forgive, then do not think that God forgives you. But if you forgive, you have this comfort and assurance that you are forgiven in heaven. This is not because of your forgiving, for God forgives you freely and without condition, out of pure grace, because he has so promised as the gospel teaches. But God says this in order that he may establish forgiveness as our confirmation and assurance, as a sign alongside the promise, which agrees with this prayer in Luke 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. Therefore, Christ repeats it soon after the Lord's Prayer and says in Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, and so on. 
this whole thing then is about you have been given, just like Pastor Smith was saying before, the comfort of the gospel. Out of that comfort of the gospel, you are able to forgive. You don't know, I don't know, nobody knows what forgiveness is apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and apart from being clothed in his righteousness. Out of that forgiveness of Christ flows any kind of before-the-world forgiveness or forgiveness to other people that we might be able to express. Yeah, I I was often taught, uh, not often, I'm sorry, I was formerly taught uh, that when uh, practicing the language of forgiveness, that, that I would use the language of, as God in Christ has forgiven me, of course I forgive you, right? And that is always a helpful reminder for me that this forgiveness is flowing out from me, not in a way that I have to do it, otherwise I'm not forgiven. I'm already forgiven. It's reminding me of the gospel, the context of why I, why I am forgiving and why I cannot help but forgive. Because if I hold a grudge, well, God never... God didn't hold a grudge against me. I'm already reconciled to him in Christ. And so that's going to naturally flow out from it. It, it. It's a helpful reminder and training of our brain to live this, this life that's all packaged together, that the sanctified life flows forth from this justified life. And just as that forgiveness flows from Christ to us, through us, to others, uh, this argument flows as well. Um, wow. And so we'll pick up in... Uh, bum yeah, I thought that was a pretty good segue right there until you interrupted me. Um, <laughs> I had to because it was so good. I couldn't let the, the non-professional hi- make that kind of a oh, move. Oh, okay. We have to highlight the awesomeness of yeah. it by pausing. I'm just a pastor. It's okay. Um, anyway, we get to go on with paragraph 140 here in the fifth, third, fourth uh, article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Faith is required also in the Sermon of Daniel. Chapter 4. For Daniel did not mean that the king should only give alms. He includes repentance when he says, Break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. This means, Break off your sin by a change of heart and works. Here also, faith is required. Daniel proclaims to him many things about the worship of the only God, the God of Israel. He converts the king not only to give alms, but much more to have faith. For we have the excellent confession of the king about the God of Israel. There is no other God who is able to rescue us in this way, as it says in Daniel 3.29. Therefore, in Daniel's sermon, there are two parts. One part gives a commandment about the new life and the works of the new life. In the other part, Daniel promises the forgiveness of sins to the king. This promise of the forgiveness of sins is not a preaching of the law, but a truly prophetic and evangelical voice. Daniel certainly meant that the promise should be received in faith. For Daniel knew that the forgiveness of sins in Christ was promised not only to the Israelites, but also to all nations. Otherwise, he could not have promised to the king the forgiveness of sins. For without God's sure word about his will, a person has no power to claim, especially when terrified by sin, that God ceases to be angry. In his own language, Daniel speaks clearly about repentance and even more clearly brings out the promise. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. These words teach about all of repentance. They direct the king to become righteous, then to do good works, to defend the miserable against injustice, as was the king's duty. Righteousness is faith in the heart. 
Furthermore, sins are redeemed by repentance. In other words, because um, the obligation or guilt is removed, because God forgives those who repent, as it is written in Ezekiel 18. Not are we to conclude from this that he forgives on account of the works that follow, on account of alms. Rather, he forgives only those who take hold of it on account of his promise. Only those who truly believe take hold of this promise and through faith overcome sin and death. These, being reborn, should produce fruit worthy of repentance, as John the Baptist says. The promise, therefore, was added. There may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Jerome expresses some doubt here, which is beside the matter. In his commentaries, he argues much more unwisely that forgiveness of sins is uncertain. But let us remember that the gospel gives us a sure promise of the forgiveness of sins. To deny that there must be a sure promise of the forgiveness of sins would completely abolish the gospel. Let us dismiss Jerome concerning this passage. The promise is displayed even in the words, break off, for it shows the forgiveness of sins is possible, that sins can be redeemed, that is, that their obligation or guilt can be removed, or God's anger can be appeased. But our adversaries overlooking the promise everywhere consider only the laws. They falsely attach the human opinion that forgiveness happens on account of works. The text does not say this, but instead requires faith. For wherever a promise is, there faith is required. For a promise cannot be received unless through faith. Works are recognizable among human beings. Human reason naturally admires works. Reason sees only works and does not understand or consider faith. Therefore it dreams that these works merit forgiveness of sins and justify. This opinion of the law naturally sticks in people's minds. It cannot be driven out unless we are divinely taught. The mind must be recalled from such earthly opinion to God's word. We see that the gospel and the promise about Christ have been laid before us. When, therefore, the law is preached, when works are commanded, we should not reject the promise about Christ, but the promise must first be grasped in order that we may be able to produce good works pleasing to God, as Christ says, apart from me you can do nothing. Therefore, if Daniel would have used words like these, redeem your sins by repentance, the adversaries would not have noticed this passage. Since Daniel has actually expressed this thought in other words, the adversaries distort his words to the harm of the doctrine of grace and faith. However, Daniel meant his words most especially to include faith. Therefore, we respond to the words of Daniel as follows. Since he is preaching repentance, he is teaching not only about works, but also about faith as the story itself testifies in the context. Second, because Daniel clearly presents the promise, he necessarily requires faith, which believes that sins are freely forgiven by God. In repentance, he mentions works. Yet, he does not say that we merit the forgiveness of sins by these works. Daniel speaks not only about the forgiveness of the punishment. The forgiveness of the punishment is sought in vain unless the heart first receives the forgiveness of guilt. Besides, if the adversaries understand Daniel as speaking only about the forgiveness of punishment, this passage will prove nothing against us. 
it will then become necessary for them also to confess that the forgiveness of sins and free justification come before good works. Afterward, even we concede that the punishments by which we are chastised are soothed. This happens by our prayers, by our good works, and finally, by our entire repentance according to 1 Corinthians 11.31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And also from Jeremiah 15, If you return, I will restore you. From Zechariah 1.3, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And finally, from Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. This is really not that well understood in our present culture still today. And... Of course, there's nothing new under the sun, but there, there's this line in here where we recognize that human reason naturally admires works. We saw that in mm-hmm. paragraph 144. And, you know, I, I've heard well-meaning people saying, you know, oh, we, we're, we're past the Reformation. We don't need to talk about this anymore. Um, you know, we can move on. You know, this isn't really a threat anymore. But we still have this struggle because we, we recognize that there are, you know, in, in terms of human reason, right? There are good works still done among us and we're thankful for those and we do admire them, but will it save them? And, and one of the instances, and maybe you guys have your own that pop into your minds, but one of the instances that pop into my mind is uh, when I was younger in, in high school, just out of high school, actually a, a friend of mine from high school um, went to serve in the army and was killed in Iraq and I remember at the funeral that another friend was talking about, oh, how they're in heaven. And I said, well, what assurance do you have of that? Um, because the person that I knew had no faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, I, I remember them being quite antagonistic to Christ. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, in the time that I didn't know that person while they were over in Iraq, that they didn't come to faith. We have very good chaplains in the military. And I certainly pray that this person was brought to faith. But this person, you know, outside of any mark of faith, um, this other person was proclaiming that they're in heaven because they were a soldier who did a good work, who went and fought for our country and laid down their life ultimately. And, and that's what earns heaven. And I said, no, this, I mean, we're still living the reformation. I mean, I, I admire the good work and, and I certainly attended the funeral because I was thankful for my friend serving in that capacity, um, you know, to, to, um, to do that work that we do need in our culture to administer justice, but ultimately that does not save that person. And, uh, and so we still struggle with this, that we see all these sorts of different good works and there's lots of different examples out there that we really could give. Uh, that's just the one that comes to my mind, um, that, uh, you know, if that's what saves you, well, then they're not perfect. None of us are. And so there's really not that much hope there in the good works. And that's why when we preach repentance and these good works flowing forth, it is assuming it, it is it is returning us, not assuming it's returning us to that justification that these are received by faith. And of course, we're, we're going to do lots of good works and raising our families or whatever have you um, that flow forth from that, recognizing that I don't have to do them to save me. I, I think when you attend a funeral that's where you're going to see this theology come out most strongly. Even in Christian funerals, the emphasis in so many, I would would venture to say the majority of funerals is on how good this person was. And the intent is that you find comfort 
in, in this that that this person is in a better place because they were good even if they don't explicitly say that and in many cases they will explicitly say that um but i mean that's there, there's no place more clear i think today in our culture than a funeral to see where this is alive and well where reformation is still ongoing and needed yeah, that's why at a at a Lutheran funeral we're always proclaiming Christ because first of all you're misremembering the person generally. I mean, we never <laughs> want to speak ill of the dead, and so you know if we're only talking about the good, I, I think sometimes we're forgetting just how big of a jerk some of these people were and and how much we called them that while yeah. they were alive. You know, uh, so clearly they they need Christ too. And this is a case where uh, one of the really helpful Lutheran distinctions that we have is the distinction of being at the same sign at the same time completely sinner and completely saint. We are God's people who need to hear the law to be accused by our sin and and by God's word of law and to hear the grace of forgiveness. We don't reach a point where we get past the gospel, just like we don't get to a point where we get past the law. The sinner in us needs to continue to hear both law and gospel. The saint in us continues to need to hear both the law that shows what the will of God is in the Christian life and the gospel that motivates how that is that it happens. Uh, Because good works do indeed flow from the gospel, but they're directed by the law. They're given a shape, a structure by the law. And so we live within this complete and total law and gospel life. Daniel goes to the king and he speaks law and he speaks gospel. Your pastor comes to you and he preaches law and he preaches gospel. When you go to a Christian funeral service, you hear the law. The wages of sin is death. And you can see that in this casket in front of you. And that is hurtful. And Jesus Christ has come to save this saint from death, and he has come to save you from death. And there is the gospel. The, this passage, I, I've appreciated as we've gone through these, well, we got made it through like two and a half pages here, but just the emphasis over and over again on the promise. And I thank you guys for the exegetical reminder as well, struggling through this in that recognizing that For us Christians, the law is never there without the promise also. And so while we are always accused, we are also always given that promise that that we are forgiven and we don't need to look to ourselves. We shouldn't look to ourselves, Um, you know, especially talking about maybe I don't know if it's a little too much of a downer here talking about funerals, but man, does it ever become clear like you said, you're you're staring at the wages of sin in that moment. And if you don't have a pastor there proclaiming that promise right alongside the wages of sin, we will mourn as those who have no hope, to paraphrase that in the opposite direction there. Every once in a while, I have members come back to me and say, Pastor, we, we ended up going to a funeral um, in another church, and there wasn't very much hope there. There wasn't very much talk about Jesus, and it really bothered me. Um, Because where there's not the comfort, the promise of Jesus Christ, what is there? And it is an alarming thought. But that's where this passage from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession is so important. The law is always accompanied by the promise. And so we need to be clear that we don't stop speaking the promise. We have that continual call. Yes, speak the law. 
But also, don't forget the promise and don't forget to say the promise of Christ out loud. <laughs> Sorry. There's a lot of pointing going on here. Who's there? Is? Is? I, I wasn't sure Fisk was wanting to jump in there. No, there's, there's two minutes left, and okay. I didn't want to take those All two right. minutes. I want to get, see them to you guys. Well, I, I just want to read a line from Walter here that is just... Which copy? Just beautiful. Uh, this is the uh, um, how to read, to read and read apply the, the Bible. Shot. Okay, the readers. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Walter summarizes this, and he says... Um, when the apostle answers the jailer's question by saying, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the same as saying, you don't need to do anything. Just receive what God has already done for you. That is all. Now you are saved. And this is in part of a beautiful thesis, thesis nine uh, in his law gospel work there that, that really to summarize the point there, if, if we're making it something that we have to do, in any of this, in any preaching of the law, it's going to fall short of trusting that promise. We don't have to do anything. It's done for you. Just receive it. Christ has done it for you. And when you cling to that promise through faith, oh, beautiful works flow out beautifully from there. And um, and, and ultimately, that's, that's where... I was thinking as we were going through this today of the Psalms and, and how often we talked about earlier, you know, that, that, uh, the law, we're not comfortable in it, but David, especially in the, in the Psalms, he talks about, I delight in your law. I love your law and all those things uh, flowing out from there. And this is David who committed adultery and murder and had the prophet come and accuse him of these things to his you faith. You are the like, man. Yeah, you're the and man. not in a good way. Right? Yeah. Um, but uh, he recognizes and he finds that comfort there because of faith. He trusts the promise that one of his own descendants, Christ Jesus our Lord, save him from his sins. And and that's his hope. That's our hope. That's always our hope. He believed the law that he was that bad. Mm-hmm. And then he believed the promise that it was for him. Yeah. A promise that's conditional is ultimately not really a promise at all. It's it's an agreement. What we have in Christianity is a promise. And repentance without faith in what I ought to do is not really repentance at all either. You need both law and gospel, and that's what we're looking forward to, especially in the life of the world to come, where that law will be all that we know because of Jesus knew he's already done for us here and now. You're listening to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. Pastor Peter Ill, Pastor Sean Smith, Mr. Peter Slayton, and myself, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, reminding you that whatever you do, get yourself some gospel this coming week and rock on. Rock on.